I did re-listen to our complete 38-minute interview at normal speed with today's guest from two years ago. God, was it two? It was two years ago, and you'd think the world would have changed dramatically, but the only thing that was different was it wasn't COVID yet, but I still had not analyzed and published the data that I'm working on right now. What was it you were talking about? No, wait. If I, go, if I go back in time, I still hadn't published it. No, what I mean to say is I still haven't published the data today that I collected in Samoa two years ago, three years ago, two years ago, that I was just about to go collect and talking about when we interviewed her in 2019. I mean, spring. I still have a paper or two to put out for Finland, and that data was collected in January 2019. Granted, I changed jobs in the middle of that. <laughs> you were moving. You were packing up. You were. You were. You had sold your houses, house, house. and bought your house. All of my many houses. <laughs> you, 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 you flipped some houses. <laughs> you flipped some some tenure track, prestigious gigs, and yeah. So yeah, yeah. Between moving and then within what six months, the pandemic hitting. Yeah. I gotta say, we did a good interview with her. No wonder it it's, she's so easy. She's super and, easy to talk to. Is the thing. I I may may have failed to mention this to her. Like one of my motivations for asking her back on is that our listeners clearly like her. I'm yelling and I can hear the echo. I've got to whisper now. Our listeners clearly like her because I th- she's like our most highly listened to episode by a, a country mile. And then I think her advisor Nina Jablonski is second. So. Or maybe Sharon Dewey. Hold on. You just said something I've never heard before. By a country mile. What does that mean? It's funny because in that episode, you wanted to, you had never heard, I said my kids were toe-headed and you never heard that expression. Yeah. What are these expressions? By a country mile? It probably means long. It means like. It has to mean by a lot. Longer. By a country. Country miles wind around, right? It's like as as the crow flies is short. By country mile should be long. A very long way. <laughs> That's that is the definition provided by Google. A very well, long way. Makes sense because my grandmother lived in the country. When she would say a mile, and I'd ask her, you know, like, you mean like a, a regular mile? She'd be like, yeah, you know, a mile ish. <laughs> ish. Uh, but yes, you are you are correct in your comparison to as uh, as the crow flies because a country mile is considered long and winding and curving and as the crow flies is a straight line so the google has solved everything look at me with my folk wisdom your folk wisdom indeed indeed so hey kara um, hey chris i have coffee i also have coffee I'm really excited about my coffee. I lost my almost my entire morning to my allergist because he likes to, to chit-chat and barely scramble to get like five things checked off my list before this podcast today. I spent my morning walking my quad, listening to two articles by Tina Lasisi and our entire first podcast at regular speed. Anyway, we've had Tina on before, apparently two years ago. For some reason, I thought it was only one year, but COVID times expands and contracts at irregular rates. So Tina is a postdoctoral scholar, so she fairly recently uh, received her PhD. So a massive congratulations, and we'll say that again to her her virtual face when she comes on. But she's a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Anthropology at Penn State University, where we've had several other folks that we've talked to from there as well. And she is interested in the evolution of human variation and pigmentation and scalp hair, as well as science communication. She actually is very very good at SciComm and uh, you, what, what does this look? You're giving me a look. 
I feel like I know her from a TikTok where she's talking about the evolution of butt crack hair. You know that's one of the questions, right? That's right. I, I have I, that, I, I think, it's question number six. Uh, the, I, the, the butthole hair. I insisted that we talk about that. Oh, I mean, how we talk about like everything on this show. Why wouldn't we? How how have we not talked about butthole hair? That's the real question. That is an excellent question. <laughs> and wow, we could go down a dark road. <laughs> like terrible pun. Um, so after she has successfully and recently defended her dissertation, she's also collaborating with you for something for the AABA, right? Yeah, then- she is one of the co-chairs of the. Uh, integumental anthropology session. You want to ask? Oh, you know what integument was because you took anatomy. I've taught, I've taught anatomy. I know these things. But I looked it up, so I can tell you it, it is the surface of the body. It's the skin, yes, yes, and all of its various fun layers and bits and bobs. So I'm an I'm an integumentary anthropologist. I discovered. So I have a I have a session on tattooing and a session on on all sorts of um, animal coverings. Including yeah. uh, and then she is on a panel with me that I'm chairing for the AAAs in what, like a month, a little less than a month from now, on science communication stuff. Dr. Lasisi. Hello. Hi. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Awesome. How are you? Yeah, I'm tired, man. I'm always oh. tired. I want to get more original. <laughs> you should get the. You have to if you got to. If you're gonna rep is always tired, you have to get the tattoo under your eye that says always tired in true posty fashion. Or you can be like Chris and I who are here with our coffee. Or just arrive with coffee. Right now, because you know, same boat. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen that meme, but it's that skeleton that's like on fire on a seat and going really fast. And I'm like, that's how I feel with caffeine. It's like I'm still dead, but I'm going fast. Yeah. Yeah. It gets you to that place. Not really sure what state you're going to be in once you arrive, but I you're usually, there. I usually feel super jacked up, totally exhausted, and like I want to vomit. And, <laughs> you know, with like a bunch of caffeine. Like, I get all jacked up. I'm like, I can't think straight, but I think I'm going to throw up. I'm so... Goodness. Anyway, so as Chris said, Dr. Tina Lasisi, the last time we spoke to you two years ago, you were pre-defense, and you now have the doctor on the name the PhD in hand, how does it feel to be a postdoctoral scholar? It feels, it feels exhausting. Just like that. <laughs> it feels weird to have completed something. I'm not used to finishing things off of the to-do list. And I think in academia, we have so many like permanently ongoing projects that mm. it's kind of weird, but kind of nice to say like, oh, well, you know, I completed that. No one can take that away from me. You know, that's a good point. I forgot to put get a PhD on my fucking to-do list when well, I was can we, we can do it retroactively. We can do it right now and then immediately cross it off. There's nothing exactly that. <laughs> that's a really good idea. Chris, you can you know, also put getting tenure and becoming a full professor on that list and immediately cross it off. I've been admonished for this before. There, I've been told, like, make sure you take yourself out for a bagel or some shit when you accomplish <laughs> something. Because no, that's literally what I was told. Like, if nothing else, because we academics tend to be like, yeah, but I got to do all these other things I'm not caught up on, and we devalue our own accomplishments. Take your, yeah, I know. Kara's pointing at herself, and I, I, Kara is is the worst in this room. <laughs> Sounds like we all have the same therapist. Yeah, yeah. But I was literally told by one of our previous guests, Kathy Oates, uh, to at least go get myself a fancy coffee or a bagel or something. 
So I I remember like yeah because I don't buy bagels because you know you don't live in New, New York, York anymore. <laughs> I know that's what I'm going to say. They're not New York bagels, but <laughs> we have been doing this together far too long. When we get those things down. I had a paper come out yesterday. I should go get myself a bagel after this interview. So Tina, or would you like to be called Doctor? Oh man, like you know, I'm not gonna lie. I want to be that person who like <laughs> addressed me as Doctor, like Casey, but uh, I just feel like really weird and awkward about yeah. it. I'm like just just Tina, you know. Well, we will make sure that we we sprinkle in a little Doctor Lacisi. But since if we are all Doctor in this room, it gets a little confusing. So <laughs> Doctor, Doctor, yes, Doctor. We doctor, are, yes, doctor. <laughs> we are not going to start as we usually do because I want listeners to go back and listen to episode fifty-one. For those of you who are counting, we are well above a hundred. So this was like two years ago that we interviewed Tina Lacisi. I just re-listened to the whole 38 minutes, as I told Kara, at normal speed. So I apologize that I sound like I'm drunk all the time, apparently. But um, I did listen to it. We did a great interview with you. I'm so impressed with all of us. Well done. And now you have to go and listen to that interview to find out how the professor was made, right? Because we always want to know the origin story. Right? My villain so origin got- story. You have to, it's a very interesting origin story, right? You'll have to go back and listen to that now. Now, we want to find out what happened between then and now. So what I want to start off with is we left off with you getting ready to do uh, some data collection and analysis. You had developed a method. You told us about your method, and you were going to do some data collection leading up to this dissertation that you just got. And so you're going to tell us how that went, I think. I think so, too. Um, I just think it's so funny. Like, you know, when you don't interact with people for a long time and then they ask you, like, a really simple question, like, what's your name? And you're like, (laughs) I don't know. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Names escape me frequently. Yeah. And as for, you know, wow, it's been two years. And what what did I say I was going to do two years ago? Well, Um, let let me let me be fair. You mentioned GWAS in the episode and I asked you what that was. So like I was like, why did I ask her that? Clearly, I know what that is, but I sound like an idiot. So let's just (laughs) let's just level the playing field and note that we all have these moments, even about our own name. So. You were you you had uh, developed a method to correct mistakes you made in your 2016 paper, and you wanted to implement that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my guess is that thing. you 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 had the usual wandering, meandering dissertation type road. So tell us about it. What what was your data collection like, and and what did you ultimately do? Basically, what I now I remember um, what I said is that I didn't like my 2016 paper. I had feelings about it. And basically my feelings were, I didn't like that I fell back into this trap of basically comparing averages in populations because it doesn't matter how fancy your your methods are if ultimately you know, what you're doing is constructing a typology, even if it doesn't feel that way, you know, that, that was very unsatisfying for me. So I had very um, big ambitions of doing like huge data collection. And, and then this little pandemic Lovato happened. Um, so that kind of got in the way, but I can't even blame it entirely on the pandemic because uh, things just always take so much longer than you think. And it sounds so cliche, 
Um, but I thought like, you know, I'll, I'll have so much time to, to do all of this. Like I've done it before, but developing the methods. And I'm pretty sure that the first time that we spoke, I was finishing developing the methods. So that already was wrong. It's like, oh yeah, I'm almost <laughs> done. That's uh, that's incorrect. That was incorrect. <laughs> so I actually ended up spending quite a bit of time on finishing the image analysis Python package, which involved me going from calling the terminal the black screen, quote unquote, to, you know, writing my first few lines of code and then, you know, creating something in Python when I haven't even used Python for any other purpose before. So let this be a lesson to anyone. If, if I can do it, you can do it. Anyone can learn. You don't have to have a background in computer programming to, to learn how to develop your own methods. Because at the end of the day, what was important for me is that I was able to solve my problem. I actually had a lot of problems when it came to the methods, but you know, I can give more detail on the methods later. But basically what ended up happening is that once I was done with them, I applied them to a, a set of hair samples that we already had. So I was looking at uh, people with African and European admixture to basically try to move from this divide of, of this you know, tri-continental comparison and looking in an admixed population to say, okay, we know that the quote unquote parental populations that contributed to these to this group had different averages of hair curl, hair curvature. What what does it look like when you look in this admixed group? And so that's what I ended up focusing on. And it was really interesting because what you saw is that there's a huge amount of quantifiable variation that we miss when we talk about hair in these in these categories. But I also had, um, you know, a whole other part to my dissertation that involved putting wigs on robots and then measuring how they did under the sun. So yeah, there was that as well and analyzing it and then writing it. Yeah. So like, those are all of the things that I did. And somehow I wrapped that up. When did I wrap that up? Earlier huh. this year. I have no idea when we are right now. This, we already talked about that at the beginning before we brought you on of just the expansion and contraction of time and the pandemic at irregular rates. We're just constantly unmoored is maybe yeah. the best way to put it. But I mean, since you already talked about it, we were going to talk about your, your recent AJPA paper. But since you brought up methods, let's just talk about that mm -hmm. methods piece. Uh, because you had a recent one that came out in Science Reports about hair fiber morphology and how to quantify the phenotype. Uh, and we've been kind of doing this mini series on methodologies for the podcast. So walk us through that and keep in mind, most folks probably have zero concept of what you even mean when it comes to hair morphology. I got you. I will, I will go from the beginning. Thank so you. when you look at our hair, there's multiple components of it that you can describe. And one of those components we usually describe as hair shape or texture or type you can also describe that as hair morphology. And there's different levels that you can look at it. Um, and one of the levels is at the level of the individual hair fiber. So that's pretty much where we're situated. So if we're looking at an individual hair fiber, how can we describe its shape or its morphology? And there's two aspects of that that you could possibly look at. One of them is the cross-sectional shape and size. So if you have you know, this fiber and you cut it in half and you look at the cross section, what's the shape, what's the size. And then the other part of it is curvature. So the variation that we talk about when we describe hair as, you know, 
a continuous variable from straight to tightly curled, that can be described as the curvature of an individual hair fiber. So both of these things, you can talk about them descriptively, but you can also measure them. And when I started out way back in undergrad, I was really interested in learning about, well, how, how does human hair vary? And since we've done all of this cool work with measuring skin color instead of, you know, using these, these categories, is there maybe something like that for hair? And the answer was uh, equal parts disappointing and complicated. And um, mainly what you saw is that for cross sections, we had methods that went back to like the 19th century when people were, you know, taking these hair samples from all over the world and looking at their cross-sectional shape and basically doing what 19th century uh, human biologists were wont to do, which is create these racial categories and say, okay, this is what um, Asian hair looks like. This is what European hair looks like. This is what African hair looks like. And what's actually really interesting is, and that ties into the, the other paper that we, we can talk about, is that they then establish these ideas about a fixed type that exists and that there are basically these three different fixed types. And it's something that persists until today. So this idea that East Asian hairs are round and African hairs are flat in terms of their cross-section. And then that Europeans, of course, are Goldilocks somewhere in the middle. And what's interesting is then that this inference is made that, well, if East Asians have round cross-sections and they have straight hair and Africans have flat cross-sections and they have tight, tightly curled hair, those two things must be related and one must predict the yeah. other. And so that was a sort of myth that was floating around for the longest time. But the thing is, if you don't know how to measure curvature, how are you going to know that those two things are you know, in some kind of linear relationship with each other, as opposed to just, you know, some other kind of relationship or that those are independent aspects of hair that co-occur. So then fast forward to curvature, the earliest paper I could find about that was in the 1970s when this guy called Daniel Hardy um, wrote his undergraduate thesis on human hair variation in the 70s. And he developed this method for looking at curvature, which basically involved flattening the hair between two glass slides and taking these transparencies that had arcs of different sizes and then basically comparing it against the hair and taking all of those measurements. So in 2011 or whatever, 2012, whenever I wrote my undergrad thesis, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's so cool. There's a method for this. Why haven't people, you know, taken this up? <laughs> and that's because when I started trying it out, I'm like, this is this is not fun. This is time consuming. I see why people haven't done it. And I basically tried to do, you know, a cute little upgrade where instead of doing it manually, I was like, well, why don't we use a flatbed scanner? I know it's very janky methods, but a flatbed scanner to basically tape all of these hairs to a piece of paper, put them under a transparency, scan them, and then use some image analysis program. I was working with bone people at the time. So they taught me how to use ImageJ and I was like, okay, let me draw all these circles. So that was cute um, for my PhD. I was like, well, we have to level this up because there were a lot of issues. First of all, if you're gonna flatten the hair to measure it, you're already distorting it. Like it doesn't matter how careful you are, you're introducing some kind of distortion. 
So is there maybe something we can do in sample preparation to make that easier? Um, with the cross section, the issue was that when you want to get a cross section of a hair, you have to embed it first because hairs are so long and so thin that you're working on these like two very different scales and it's very annoying and they're very finicky. So you need to stabilize them to slice them and to look at them under a microscope. And what people mainly have been doing is using resin. And resin takes about 24 hours to cure and you need the hair to be straight in order to get like a clean section. So how are you gonna hold a curly hair straight for 24 hours? There's a lot of workarounds, but it's not fun. So long story short, my whole, honestly, most of my PhD was trying to solve those issues. And it came down to messing around in the lab, man. Like, I don't care what anyone says. Like, I don't care what I wrote <laughs> in the paper. Fuck around and find out. Exactly. True scientific method. <laughs> exactly. Like, I wish that it was like, you know, this systematic, like, oh, yeah, like, what can we do? What do we know about these materials? It involved me and one of my advisors, Mark Shriver, literally sitting on the floor in the lab, like trying a bunch of different stuff. And at some point, Mark says to me, why don't we laminate the hairs? And let me tell you, when I looked at him, I was like, respectfully, Mark, what? Because that sounds like flattening and heating the hair, both of but, which should cause distortion, right? Right. But for the curvature, that would have been an issue. But for the cross section, I was like, I mean, I see this seems weird, but it was the first step to us starting to look at plastics for embedding the hairs. And ultimately, we settled on this like low melt point plastic where basically we were, you know, encasing the hairs immediately and it was hardening. And then you could slice it with like a scalpel, which is such a huge upgrade from, you know, the work that was being done with resin. And then with the curvature, like, you know, we messed around and ultimately decided that we could cut the hairs to like, you know, be really short so that they only curved in one dimension. And then that made it easier to, you know, wash them and just put them through a whole process and just do the whole thing at like a bigger scale and then take pictures of these things. And then the last step was, okay, now we have these images of the cross sections under a microscope and the curvature. How do we analyze that and that involves you know learning and messing around with image analysis and ultimately i put all of those things together and whoop, uh it's a paper now so what i love about is the fucking around that mm -hmm. you were given the opportunity to do i mean if it were not for phd students wanting to level it up from what they think of as janky undergrad methods which frankly was all anyone had done, you know, if they did it at all, up to you. No, no uh, tenure track person who's in a big fucking hurry to get a bunch of papers out or someone who's too tired to spend that much time in the lab because they, they are tenured and don't need to anymore is going to do that. And I can hear you You say it doesn't come across in the paper, but it does. Because in the paper, you're talking about the, the choice of scalpel. And I, could, I, I, I was listening to your paper and thinking, oh, my God, where do you get – like, how many times do you get your finger stuck in the plastic while you're trying to straighten it out? Your fingerprint's now on it. You've got plastic stuck all over your body. And then it's going in a laminate, and you're having to cut it. I mean, and fortunately, I haven't watched them yet, but you – 
in your supplementary material there are videos, correct? Mm -hmm. So so mm -hmm. so you've done the science. You've you've made the method replicable. So kudos to you. You you gave us a clear walkthrough and you videotaped it and provided it so that there's no excuse to go back to those yank, janky methods. There's only opportunities to continue to improve on, on what you have done to move the science mm -hmm. forward. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for like even reading it in that much detail because, you know, there's multiple levels to reading a paper, you know, and I'm not going to read everything in depth. And it's usually not until you're trying to do something that you read the method section. So when I was first trying to you know, do anything with like measuring hair. I read all of these papers and I was like, you are not giving me any detail. Like I can't do anything based off of what you said. And it was so frustrating that for me, it became this, I don't know, like this, this personal like point of importance that I need to make it as obvious as possible. I need to break it down step by step because otherwise people are gonna be stuck with what I had before. And that involved like a lot of parts of me being very stubborn in places where I am sure other people may not have been, but it also involved having, you know, support and space from my advisors to mess around. And a lot of people don't get that because just the way that, you know, we, we train people these days, especially I say these days as if I was around before, but in any case, the way we do it these days, we want people to have output. And I was investing years, like four or five years into something where, you know, there were a lot of times people were like, are you sure it's that important? Like, are you sure you can't just like, you know, kind of do it okay instead of doing it as well as you want. And that's really tough to, you know, put your foot down, especially when you're just a student. Yeah, I, I, having spent enough time around uh, flatbed scanners as a methodology, uh, you know, wondering like, is this the best we've got? And, and, and having people say, yes, as a matter of fact, it is the best we've got. I can appreciate the frustration and the insecurity of, you know, because I just don't believe people. If I'm a grad student and I'm using a flatbed scanner and Adobe uh, Photoshop, like base, not even Adobe Photoshop, just Adobe and the ruler function on that. I'm like basic ass consumer grade stuff, which, you know, might be fine, but I don't know. Right. But I'm you like, know really? what the gag is? The gag is that I had invented the flatbed scanner method and we didn't even have that before. So imagine how we're living in the stone ages. Good point. This might work to improve the methodology. And I don't even know if I should say improve, more like invent in a lot of ways the methodology and make it extremely accessible and extremely available. So you're just kind of making science better. So awesome. Well done. But you're also working to make science better in other ways. And you alluded to this earlier in your answer about how these the, the classical descriptions of hair morphology are all about categorizing people into racial boxes. And mm -hmm. you have a, a recent paper coming out, AJ. It's still mm -hmm. PA. I'm not sure if yeah. you're switching it to BA and when that's happening, but it came out this past March and you discuss racialization and uh, how our tendency is to create these classification boxes because we want people to fit neatly into these boxes, which we then, of course, uh, apply a hierarchical standard to based on no reality whatsoever, uh, and that that hinders our study of variation. And so this is a really powerful and timely piece, and it takes a hard look at 
how we do science and how we've done it historically and how that history is still carried forward and persists in the way we do science today. Uh, and so what motivated you to write this piece like in the here and now, I guess, in the here and now a year ago may have been when you were writing it. But uh, And what was the process of writing that like? So my motivation for it and idea behind it is, you know, not at all that I'm the first person to say this, but that I felt I might be able to contribute a, like, you know, a, a, a convenient and a nice clear case study of how this still goes wrong in hair and in skin. Because what you, or at least what I see when I look through the history of scientific literature on any racialized traits and race in general, as well as hair and skin, is that you have a lot of academic silos and you have a lot of particular histories that shape the kinds of work that's done, the kind of questions that are asked. And some of what we see today is because there is not a we, there is not a we scientists. And I just find it so funny that, you know, we think about it that way. And when we talk about the scientific community, we talk about like a generalized we, but I think one of the most fascinating things about science is how knowledge is distributed and like the networks that it moves around in because you see all of these patterns. And so, you know, looking back at the 19th century literature, there there is like a, a kind of like, you know, broad general, okay, people looking at human biology. But as you move forward, like you have more and more specialized research and specialized subjects. So looking over like the last, you know, two decades, you have people who do research on hair. Like I, I'm not the only one, but those people are mainly in cosmetology. Uh, you know, people with backgrounds in chemistry, it, sometimes biophysics even, who are looking at things from the perspective of, you know, cosmetics and trying to solve issues in cosmetics. Then there's people in dermatology who are coming from a medical background. And then there's also people who come from a forensic background. And I think that knowing these things is really important because it shows you why people think about things in particular ways. And trying to understand that is going to do so much in terms of us trying to, you know, offer better alternatives or, or explain how human variation works in non-racial ways than simply, you know, calling people ignorant and being like, well, y'all should have read our papers because they don't, they're not going to read your papers. And I thought that, you know, with hair and skin, those were some really interesting examples because with hair particularly, um, lot of recent bioanth work. And I think that that's because we lack the methods. If you look at um, syllabi that people have teaching human variation uh, in bioanth, like, you know, intro or whatever level, they will always talk about skin color because it's like, okay, whew, you know, I can, I can show them this one. I can show them this, you know, uh, this gradient. I can show them how clearly this doesn't fit into the boxes. Like you have the tools to explain why race doesn't fit. But we don't have that, or we didn't have that with hair. And honestly, to the, we still don't have enough information to you know, even compare or present something that is as convincing with hair as it is with skin color. And so 
trying to give a couple of examples of, okay, so here you have in dermatology how it's being used. This is why it's a problem. That I think gives people this awareness of, oh, okay. So it's not just about not doing race. It's about generating knowledge that replaces what race was giving some people. I know you're probably going to be pumping out like 27,000 papers in the, in the coming few years from uh, no, like a couple papers, right? I mean, I hope a paper, so, but... A paper, a paper, <laughs> paper too. So dissertations are anywhere from one to a few papers. I'm just being um, hyperbolic. And what I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, what I'm getting at is you, you've done a great job laying the foundation for, for what, what you discovered in your dissertation. And I'm going to speculate without forcing you to answer this outright that you found what you um, had already noticed coming out of the 2016 paper and going into this research, which is that you, you can't even create meaningful categories for the extent of variation that is out there, that it becomes a hot mess of recapitulating uh, everything, right? And and if correct me if I'm wrong, if you found something different, we'd love to hear it. So I just wanted to, to get that on tape to, to know that you said that in 2016, because what I really want to ask you about is wigs on robots. Wigs on robots. And what the fuck, right? <laughs> uh, Thermoregulation? Is this what we're checking out? Yeah, definitely. So I can confirm, uh, you know, categories are trash. But so much of my work is trying to understand, okay, why are we using these categories? What are we trying to capture? And there's actually a lot of different aspects to that. Um, sometimes, you know, people are talking about different biological traits as proxies for ancestry and genealogy. Sometimes they're talking about them as proxies for the environment that, you know, people evolved in, which doesn't necessarily align with relatedness or ancestry. And other times, like, you know, people are trying to understand the biological basis of things. So, you know, without... <laughs> theorizing for, for too long or going to too much detail, a lot of what I'm going to be doing moving forward is trying to look at, you know, the intersections of these different subjects that need to be in communication with each other for us to solve these issues. And with something like, you know, you know, pigmentation in general, uh, and even hair morphology, some of the questions that you're asking, like you need to have some knowledge of um, spectrophotometry. You need to know a bit more about physics and how you can model, you know, hair fibers as elastic rods, for example. These are things where you need the knowledge of so many different experts. And so what I want to do moving forward is work together with people who have these different backgrounds and create this space where, you know, they can come in and say, okay, like, you know, this is what we tried to do, this is how we tried to answer this question. And I can be like, okay, I see what you're doing. I think you should do this as well. How do you think we can do this? How do you think we can develop new methods? And that's really where we're going to have, you know, a new direction to answer, you know, new questions. And so the evolutionary part of that is where we get to the, um, the wigs on robots which also involved interdisciplinary uh, collaborations. So where would you like me to start on that? So I'm, I'm you know, I mean, start at, uh, if you could summarize for the sake of time, I'd love to start 
beginning, but I'm guessing you're looking at thermoregulatory properties. I'm guessing they're on robots, so you don't have to walk them around, and they can go run around in the sun. I don't know. What does this look like? Basically, what ha- what happened was that one of my advisors, Nina Jablonski, had already, you know, struck up a collaboration with someone in kinesiology. Honestly, this is how all of these like science stories go. She knew this guy, um, but so he had been working with her on, um, you know, skin uh, pigmentation and like, you know, physiological questions related to that. And he has colleagues who work in, I'm gonna say like, you know, thermal biology and this interdisciplinary field called environmental ergonomics. Now, before I met any of these people, I had never heard this term. What is environmental ergonomics? No clue, didn't know. And I think it was my first year or my second year that she had introduced me to this person. And I, you know, I was talking about like, oh, I wanna test some stuff on you know, hair and like whether it uh, affects you know, our ability to uh, reduce you know, how much heat we're gaining or to lose more heat. And I started talking to these people and they were like, you know what, why don't you come and present this uh, little hypothesis you got uh, at our conference? Oh, by the way, the deadline for the abstract is yesterday, but we can still get you in and it's in Japan. So I put together an abstract really quick, a poster really quick, and um, I got flewed out to Japan where I met with all of these people who were working in environmental ergonomics. So basically what that is is people from physiology and from engineering, from a bunch of different backgrounds who are asking, okay, how can, how can we understand the interaction between humans and their environment and mostly in like the modern sense. So there's people who work on thermoregulation and uh, the people that I especially started working with are people who work with these things called thermal mannequins. So thermal mannequins are these robots, like I don't know how, what else to call them, that are used by industry, especially you know people like um, Nike or um, anyone who's developing like, you know, materials and clothing that is supposed to behave some kind of way in particular environments. And so they put them in these climate controlled chambers with whatever it is that they're testing. And then the, what that machine is basically measuring is how much heat are you losing um, with this particular thing on? So you can do that with all kinds of textiles, but you could also do that with human hair wigs and that's where i came in i was like hey guys have you ever thought about putting a wig on it um and luckily for me they entertained that uh notion and we collected a bunch of data that was honestly like i was i was impressed by by what we found but yeah that was like a very unexpected direction to go in um and yeah wigs on robots that's that's what i did we're excited to that comes out so we we will let you leave the story lay there until you uh i'm guessing uh write it up and are ready to to share those results with the world but it's, it's an yeah. excuse to bring you back on a third time so we're all for that <laughs> there's there's too much ingenuity going on tina mm-hmm. for one one episode or two so uh we're gonna take 
We're going to take a side road now. You recently posted a very personal blog post uh, about your own experience of an abusive romantic relationship that also uncovered a lot of abusive friendships and colleagueships, if you want to call it that, but folks within mm -hmm. academia. And it was a brutally honest and it was a gut-wrenching read and it was a very raw and real read. And, you know, this is always a tough thing to talk about, but we wanted to give you a platform to talk about it more personally if, if you were up for it. Uh, if you want to recap the story, you can for sure, but also tell us why you wanted to share that story about this relationship and, and, and what you hoped readers would, would take away from hearing about this experience. The, the way that the blog post came about is that there were, um, there was, there's a group of people who were putting together a series of blog posts about mental health and academia and they were looking for um, people of color, especially to to contribute. And I was like, I, I've had issues with mental health. I'm a person of color. Let me let me tell my story. And um, when I started thinking about, you know, what is it that I want to talk about? Inevitably, it came back to the thing that had like the biggest impact on me. And that was the way that I struggled to finish up because of what happened. And so what I think is pretty interesting and problematic is that we often talk about mental health as this sort of static quality that, you know, one has particular struggles innately or not, which I think is just, I don't know, I think it's very funny knowing the history of biological anthropology. Um, but it often doesn't include, in my opinion, enough of a discussion about the particular kinds of circumstances that can exacerbate that kind of situation. And, you know, also like at the end of the day, you put anyone under enough duress and they're going to experience a mental health crisis. And so I thought it was important to, you know, contribute a story and I could contribute my story about how that all impacted me in terms of academia because one of the things that's the most frustrating is the way that people talk about like oh just focus on the work and everything else is a distraction and even if you're not talking about having a mental health crisis even like you know even straight white cis men like you know experience you know, some kinds of hardships that make it impossible for them to just focus on their work. So what about those of us who are marginalized in all of these ways that make us experience these repeated microaggressions? Sometimes, you know, there's nothing micro about them. Sometimes, you know, we're pushed out of our departments. Um, that all is going to stop you from just focusing on the work. And at the same time, I knew that I was by, you know, whoever's standards successful. So from the outside, people were like, yeah, I mean, you finished in whatever a reasonable amount of time is and you publish stuff. So like, you know, that's great. I didn't want anyone to think that it, that that, that was it because there were a lot of times when I was, you know, really going through it where I thought, well, there's there's no way I'm gonna finish. 
you know, because we talk about how hard it is in academia. And sometimes that discussion makes you feel like, well, if I'm struggling on top of everything, how am I ever going to compete with anyone? Like, and it's always this competition, right? So you feel like you're already struggling to keep your head above water. And if it's a competition on top of that, then then wh why would you keep swimming? Why why would you keep going forward if you're never going to win anyway? And I know that in my experience, I I don't know. I like I didn't feel like I had a choice. I, I'm not going to say that that's necessarily a good thing, but having gone through it, I can tell people that, hey, you can be out of commission for a couple of months, many months, and work at half capacity, just like not your best for, you know, one or two years, and you can still do good work. You can still contribute something valuable. and. I feel like that's really the best advice that comes out of my story. And then the other part of that is because I just don't want to let people get away with this kind of behavior. I thought it was important to talk about because there were a lot of beliefs that I had or maybe misunderstandings that I think contributed to me being in that situation. So the way that I like to think about it is that, you know, um, cliche about a frog in slowly boiling water. And that's what it's like in a lot of abusive situations, whether it's a, you know, intimate partner relationship or whether it's friendships or even like workplace um, abuse. If it's not that bad, you stay in it longer and longer. And for me, like, it was very much like, oh, well, I mean, he never hit me. Um, I didn't realize that punching walls was considered violence. I didn't realize that financial and emotional abuse were things. And I wasn't used to talking to other people because it felt like, oh, well, I'm making this person look bad. And I think we also definitely perpetuate that by, you know, making people feel like, you can't say anything negative about your partner or your situation or people are gonna be like, well, then why are you with them? And that leads to people enduring these things in a lot of silence. Um, I mean, I guess there's, there's a lot of things I can probably say um, about that, but I think the most important takeaway is how um, my work interacted with it. I think it's extra difficult to leave abusive relationships when that person had any kind of impact on your work. And to my shock, the way that people behaved made it impossible for me to distance myself from my abuser. And that is also where a lot of the racism came up. Um, I had people say things like, oh, well, Tina's very loud and opinionated. I don't think that she was abused. Or, you know, someone saying that they heard that I threw my abuser across the room, which I find comical because most people will see me like, you know, struggling to push open a door, but you know, this angry black woman stereotype came up. And that is what I endured as someone who is 
biracial, light-skinned, and, you know, I, I come from Europe. The way that people treat me is so much kinder and, you know, with gloves on compared to what I've seen uh, dark-skinned Black women endure, what I've seen, you know, anyone who isn't a size eight endure, especially, you know, with so many of the things that were in the news, thinking of Micaiah Bryant, I wonder if I would still be alive if I didn't have all of the privileges that I do. And knowing that this is what I went through despite all of these privileges, I'm like, people should know because I feel like I can talk about it. Imagine how many people have gone through similar things and feel like there is no space for them to tell their story. I I have a couple responses to that one is thank you. We don't want to hear everybody's uh, struggles necessarily. We want to highlight uh, science, but I think uh, and you you mentioned this, right? There's no unbiased hypothesis. You said that in, your, in one of your papers. And so understanding someone's context as a total human and why they're pursuing certain directions um, and can, you know, it is important. And it's also important because unfortunately, struggle, strife, uh, sexual harassment, sexual violence are, are, are all too common. And as we elevate our peers for what they do, we also have to recognize the, the path they took. And, th and then, and I can vouch as a, a cis white male that, that yes, uh, we do also, I, I have a photograph. One of my sons took, um, I was, uh, in grad school and had a accident and was trying to finish up data collection. And I was, I was, um, I'm going to say looking like I was sobbing, but there's a, a clearly no distinction for my family between me sob looking like I'm sobbing and actually sobbing. And my son, who was uh, learning to play with a camera, who was five, happened to take a picture of me, um, hunkered over sobbing. And uh, my family pulls that out every once in a while and, and points out um, the nervous breakdown that I was having in the midst of grad school. Um, and I had a job waiting for me and, and everything, um, but it, it felt, uh, it did not feel like, uh, an accomplishment. Um, I was so overwrought and, and spread thin and worried that I couldn't support a family of five, that I wouldn't finish my dissertation when I took this job, you know, like in, in retrospect, small potatoes, but at the time, you know, if I didn't finish, uh, before I, t I got to Alabama, my wife was, you know, threatening to divorce me. I had three kids, you know, I mean, we all have hardships and um, we don't always all share them and put everything into context. So I want to thank you and, and, and say, I'm sorry that you, that you went through that. I'm sure the story has resonated with lots of folks. And I saw a lot of outpouring of support through various social media. That's not an easy thing to talk about. Uh, and because it's such a hard thing to talk about, we're going to shift gears entirely to something much more hilarious. Uh, uh oh, and this question. Oh, am I not stealing it? All right, you I'll got, let you, Chris you, introduce. We, Chris is have to, to talk we, about this. I set it up. You may take it away. Uh, thank you, because I, I, <laughs> I was so, I was so excited to find this on my reels. Because I, I I don't have I don't have TikTok, but I got into Reels on Instagram, and I I do spend like two hours 
just going through reels and lo and behold how do you have two fucking hours to just look at reels well, this is this whole professor life is this that, no no future? this is <laughs> this is why these things are problematic because i do not have two hours <laughs> just like wait that's cutting, right into sleep, cutting right into sleep cutting into eating time mm -hmm. just get but it's funny. right in and i'll watch <laughs> i'll watch uh some of the ones you know like do i drink coffee no coffee runs through my veins kind of I'll, I'll go it's you'll have to go there so lo and behold one pops up and this person is asking about the evolution of hair and but basically asking like wait a minute why did we lose all of that hair but we still have hair around our butthole is that pretty much and and then an evolutionary scientist jumps on <laughs> to school this person that evolutionary scientist is now with us dr tina lasisi tell us dr lasisi why did butthole hair evolve I love it. For that, like, did this person tag you in any way, or did you also randomly come across it? Set that up first of how sure. you even found this TikTok. And you're like, damn, this is a question I can answer. A wild evolutionary biologist appears very much. Um, so actually, um, big bonus of being on social media all the time and talking about your work all the time is that people start associating you with certain things and for a lot of people they're like oh yeah tina does hair stuff so i started getting tagged in that video so on tiktok i opened it one day and like all these people were tagging me in this video like tina like you work on hair and it was actually a response that hank green um who is like this big psychon person um had had done and i was like you know this is my time to shine, uh, mostly because I needed to correct his response. I was like, you're wrong. Um, I also love how butthole hair is your time to shine. It, look, you know what? I don't We'll take what we blessings. can get. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> I don't question my blessings. Opportunity comes in many forms. And I was like, okay, let me let me put this uh, let me put this together. And mainly, what I wanted to do was reply to what Hank Green was saying because what he was saying is that there is a possibility that it was sexual selection, which was one hypothesis that he didn't like. But he said, oh, it could be sexual selection because you know uh, a lot of you know human bodies are because of sexual selection, like head hair. So I was already like, eh. Okay, first thing that is incorrect, I need you to know that. And then his second hypothesis, he said that he preferred better was um, that it might have evolved to stop us from uh, chafing. There we go. That's the one. Um, now, you, you know when you get that, like, you know, eccentric professor who you asked a really simple question and then you got a five-hour lecture, I'm that professor. I've been that professor, you know, since the day I could speak. And I had so much to say. So also like, you know, learning how to do TikToks, oof, that was like a whole other thing. So there were a number of things I wanted to, to reply to. And, and basically the big answer I wanted that person to have is not everything is selection. You know, the Spandrels of San Marco did come out and I'm like, you know, not everyone has the benefit of knowing that wonderful paper. But I was like, I need to do my part to put information out there against this adaptationist agenda Dear Dr. Pangloss, the butthole hair is just perfect for, we're going to stop there. <laughs> Dingleberries may be involved. Mm -hmm.
<laughs> I feel like that would be selection against butthole hair. Look, there were there if we're, were, if we're going down that way. If we're gonna if we're gonna go down this road, I'm like, there's a lot of things that I'm like, this doesn't this doesn't make sense. I would have designed a better human, um, but you know, there it is. I I used to have a Pomeranian, and we would have to shave around her butthole because her hair would mat together, and then she couldn't take a shit. This is my brother's cats. They're both so hairy that like yep. the dingleberries and and the mashed poo hair. Uh, it's a real like yeah yeah. I, I wonder if I wonder if dog evolution people get asked why we have to express anal glands. I have that question still. I'm like I have that question also. <laughs> Cats have the same thing. Petco, I was like, what is this option? I didn't even know that that was a thing, and I just looked. Was at this sexually selected for? Because I don't find it hot. <laughs> Mrs. Dog, Mr. Dog, are you? Check. I mean, what really is, is you know, a big question there is I'm like, look, we domesticated them and designed them, but that, that stayed, but you know what? Spandrels. Spandrels. But also, I want to just, like, thank you. I, I somewhat recently, I, uh, Chris has heard my ranting about this, by the way. Uh, I recently read a book about uh, what evolution got wrong or something. And, you know, he's an anatomist and talking about all the aches and pains that humans have. And he attributed so many things to sexual selection without even thinking of alternative hypotheses. I was sending rage texts to like Look, dozens of friends. We should that exchange one. numbers. We need to exchange numbers because raging about sexual selection oh. is. Look, I get so irritated because there is so much evo psych and i'm like that's not that's not pop evo psych bad evo psych dangerous oh, yeah. bad evo psych it, it's the trash uh sexual selection is sort of the trash bin of adaptationist thinking unfortunately so it really really and is having been having self right we all we've all gotten a fancy evolutionary idea in our head they don't they usually wash out. I think I also wrote a rage post on Facebook about this. I kind of wanted to write a review of this book for the AJPA book reviews, but mm. like it would be so vicious, I don't think yeah. they'd allow it. <laughs> I don't think they would let it go to press. <laughs> I mean, anyway, I'll go ahead. So much so much of these things are like a huge issue because there's there's one thing, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, like, you know, we have this trait. Um it like this is an option like let's think about it how would it have happened and then thinking mm -hmm. about some kind of process but if you look at a lot of you know sexual selection um like hypotheses and i talk about one of them in my ajpa paper there's a lot of you know racism and misogyny that's baked into them mm. because what a lot of these people are doing is really writing evolutionary fan fiction and i'm like I understand that you find this attractive, but that's not how evolution works. Mm -hmm. And so what's really irritating is that it's just bad evolutionary biology, because I'm like, if we're going to talk about sexual selection, let's think about, okay, what is this trait that we would consistently have selected for if people are talking about mate selection because that's usually mm -hmm. the only form of sexual selection and cross cultures as well and then when well, you apply it to humans this is what blows my mind exactly uh, humans are uh, so inconsistent and that's what i you know like to tell people like humans are super inconsistent 
if you look at the last hundred years of fashion and what's been attractive and not attractive, good luck having any kind of directional selection if, if, if this is changing mm -hmm. all the time. And on top of that, the way that human mating structure works, let's say that you're like, oh my God, Taylor Swift is the most perfect human being that has ever human beings and you can't mate with her. What are you going to do? Just die? Yes. I mean, obviously that's the answer, Tina. Yes. Exactly right. And I'm like, <laughs> if your choice is between whatever 20, 20 people that are around in your small group of humans, you're not going to be able to pick and tune every single thing. Like, this is not Sims, okay? If there isn't a reason, we don't have a good structure for sexually selecting like that. Yeah. Anyway, I know Chris says Chris is on a timeline, but he has to go teach a class uh, because you and I could be talking and raging about sexual selection raging. for literal hours. I think if, um, if, if if we're being honest, if you've noticed, we're so excited to have Tina in the room that we've totally talked over her half the time. So like Tina here, T, it, this is like we could just sit here and like go at it. The three of us forever. Yeah, yeah literally. <laughs> so we're going to have to wrap it up um, quickly so Chris can go teach class. What sort of fun things are you doing? Did you pick up any hobbies or, or during the pandemic? Or what are you reading, watching, listening? Uh-oh, you're embarrassed by she's something. Play, she's playing Sims. Covering the mouse. She's embarrassed. <laughs> I have answers. I have answers now because... <laughs> you thought about recently, this. <laughs> I, I didn't actually, but like you, you prompted a memory. Like Good. What I like about my brain is that in a panic, it will come up with things. <laughs> um, so before it used to be you know, just me spending time with my dog, Winston, who is wonderful. But recently, I started watching Why the Last Man on ah. Hulu, which was a graphic novel that I was really into about a decade ago. So I'm really excited about that. And I would recommend everyone tap into whoever's Hulu subscription you have access to and watch Why the Last Man. It is my brother's like favorite graphic novel. He's I've been wondering about that show. And I'm glad. And I'm also glad to mention Winston because you had just got him. Two years ago, I'm glad to hear he's doing good. I saw him walk past at one point. Yes. There was like a, a little furry butt moving through. Exactly. Brought right. back I, bubble hair. I start I teaching butt. literally right now. So I got to go. Okay. Thank you, Tina. Tina, thank you so much. This should be up in a couple of weeks. You are amazing as always. And we really enjoyed it.